101 of The Real Photo Show, sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. My guest today is actually from the SVA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, and that is Liz Zito, who you have heard on this program before in various forms, whether it's a live show at the School of Visual Arts or me just thanking Liz profusely. <laughs> for helping me record at the school. Uh, and I was so happy to be able to finally sit down with Liz and talk about some really interesting work she's been doing, including a fan fiction reading of the Mueller report, which already seems like a million years ago, uh, but is still so incredibly relevant in relationship to this impeachment inquiry that we are, as a country now, going through. And who knows, maybe in five years when somebody stumbles across this episode, they will be shocked as to what happened in 2019 and 2020. Or maybe they won't be shocked. Who knows? Uh, it's all so difficult to predict and uh, it feels also chaotic. But uh, Liz and I will talk a lot about the political state of the union and also the state of the arts and arts education. So this episode was recorded about a month ago, uh, and we'll spend a good deal of time talking about the Mueller Report fan fiction with Liz Zito, uh, which was also about to premiere at the Wilbury Theater on Rhode Island, and it was a live performance. And if you want to keep track of what Liz is up to, uh, the best way to do that is to follow her Instagram account, which is her name spelled backwards. It's otiz.zil, O-T-I-Z dot Z-I-L. We'll also talk about her long-running platform, Cool Trash, which started as a blog to help celebrate the strong creative women who were in Liz's life when she was dealing with issues of addiction. And now that platform has become a showcase of all the different social and political multimedia art that Liz has been producing. So that's a, a great place to visit as well if you want to know more about Liz's work, and that's at LizZito.com. So let me just read a little bit from Liz's bio. Liz Zito is a multimedia artist and humorist based in Brooklyn, New York. Zito uses her work as a tool to subvert mainstream systems. Closely studying educational institutions, Zito's work thinks critically about the evolution of art making in the age of the internet, using accessible information to reach informal audiences. And accessibility is a big part of Liz's work. The Mueller report is over 400 pages long, and Liz was thinking, how can we get more people to know what's in the report so filling in the redactions with this noir-like narrative that liz comes up with is is funny it's entertaining and it's a great way to consume the report in fact liz calls this performance the only muller report reading with a dancing bikini girl so she thinks a lot about accessibility and how to reach audiences beyond the art world okay now back to liz's bio zito humorously dissects deeply ingrained power dynamics within politics religion pop culture and western civilization creating work that lives happiest outside the confines of, of traditional art spaces so this is a really insightful and I think timely conversation about politics and art and education. Liz is incredibly thoughtful about her role as an administrator and an educator at the School of Visual Arts and we just have a fantastic conversation. But just one quick announcement before we get to the episode. 
Patrice Helmar from Marble Hill Camera and Supper Club is hosting the second Backyard Biennial this weekend. So that's September 28th and 29th. And this time there'll be workshops. Tomorrow's workshop is actually a cooking workshop, which I think is a fantastic idea. I spoke with Patrice and I think part of the idea of having these workshops is to provide some basic survival skills for artists who are living on a tight budget so that they can uh, survive and, and keep making work. And the proceeds from the sales of tickets for the Backyard Biennial and the workshops will go to the World Central Kitchen, which is very much needed with all these crazy storms that are happening right now, and to Races Texas, R-A-I-C-E-S, which provides low-cost legal services to immigrants and refugees. Again, something very much needed right now. So check it out again on Facebook, Backyard Biennial or Marble Hill Camera and Supper Club. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. I mean, (laughs) well, like right now we're kind of, we're getting ready for the school year. So for me, it's kind of just like organizing the lecture series. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, the lecture series I'm a huge fan of as, you know, and also sometimes a part of, which is great. uh, It was um, 30th anniversary, right? Yeah, last, la- year. last year. And there was a lot. There was a lot going on. Yeah, there was a lot going on. And I feel like it kind of only inspired us to keep going. So a lot of the people that were um, booking for this coming school year are also alumni or close friends of the department. Because, I mean, just why not? There's yeah. just such a wealth <laughs> yes. to choose from. <laughs> Yeah, we we had that great panel discussion with mm-hmm. Fotofeminas. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, that went. I thought went really well. Yeah, that was amazing. That was. Um, it felt like a real community effort. I think that is kind of like the major goal here in our department is is feeling like we can create a community for the students, but also something for them to be inspired by and use outside of their time here. But in planning that, it was kind of was amazing to kind of learn about your discussion with Veronica photo, with yeah. Veronica and yeah. yeah and then see how that was kind of some of the issues that were brought up with um, our students specifically yeah. Jordan Cruz but also Carla Maldonado the two students also helped organize uh, the event yeah exactly so the uh, you had picked the grad students for that panel, right? Yeah. Well, actually, so what what happened when I first started working here as an administrator, I'm also an alumni of the department. I graduated in 2015. And I always kept kind of close with the department in my time when I wasn't here. So then when I kind of, when I came on board in the fall of 2017, it was right when Hurricane Maria happened. Um, And one of our students, Jordan Cruz, was making a lot of work about Puerto Rico and her Puerto Rican identity, um, but she is from the Bronx. And so that just really opened up a lot of discussion about the state of Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican community. And we started brainstorming on ways to support the Puerto Rican community through any way we could through the department, which ended up being a alumni and faculty print sale. And... With the focus on trying to raise money to help out with this natural disaster, it sort of um, opened up the larger topic of representation um, in photography 
uh, Latina representation in the photographic community. And we had noticed that there was a, there was a growing amount of Latinas in the department who were making work about their identity, at which time Charlie, um, Charles Traub, the chair, had been having conversations with you and you had recently brought on Veronica with this lovely podcast. <laughs> so those kind of dots connected and we realized that there was a lot of, uh, I think, a lot of like-minded thoughts about how we can kind of not just talk about representation, but really celebrate work and celebrate the idea of growing a community and how do we, you know, move forward and learn about each other. And and I think on top of that, having students, you know, in graduate school utilizing their time effectively, I really wanted to work with our student population, um, specifically here with Carla and Jordan, who kind of were very vocal about their sort of social action thesis or photographic work and had a lot of conversations with me about it. But I wanted to give them sort of some tools to learn how to organize events, find community, start conversations about topics that were important to them, and giving them kind of an extra foundation as a student here, what they could get out of the department to move forward and continue learning how to bring a community together and talk about important uh, issues. Yeah, and they, they did a fantastic job. It was it was kind yeah. of like a multi-layered moderator panel. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so really, I mean, it started out you know, I feel like everyone did their part, but it was really bringing a lot of different people together. And uh, I believe it was Jordan's idea to reach out to El Museo de Barrio. Mm. And then we kind of uh, asked for their support in the event as well. And they invited one of their artists, Perla de Leon. That was um, fantastic. Yes. Yeah. And curator Susana Tumkin. And so that brought another element, which is also important, like as a as an educational institution kind of connecting with these museum institutions and sort of representing these different institutions working together. And then we invited Veronica of Photofeminas, and she kind of represents a DIY institution that she started herself and uh, her archive of Photofeminas, which is different female Latin American, Caribbean artists, uh, photographers, yeah. artists, and highlights what their work and kind of offers this collective community. That was the first time I saw what she meant by a library. Like we yeah. have been talking about this yeah. library off and on for for months after we had recorded. Yeah. And I I didn't really I could never really un fully understand what she how she envisioned it until she yeah. shows slides of her wearing it. Yeah, she's the actual <laughs> she's the actual library. Yes, that was great. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I think like the spirit of that also is really inspiring for our students to see just coming up with an idea and really following through with it. It's incredibly difficult to organize any type of archive and platform and the fact that Veronica has kept up with it and it keeps growing and she's all the way in Hong Kong doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's just exactly what I think people need to be it's on the same level as of, I think, what I'm thinking about in terms of the future of art making and DIY culture and, um, you know, strengthening our communities and um, strengthening our creativity. Yeah, well, 
by the time this airs, it'll just probably be a few weeks away from her show at my gallery in Trenton. Oh, wow. We're, we're actually going to, sh- yeah, we're going to show her work, which she collaborated with a poet uh, on. And her name is Cristina Galvez Martos, who's a, a childhood friend of Veronica's. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, the show is entitled uh, Pequeña Hoguera, which translates to small bonfire or blaze. And it's going to be a, a pairing of their work that they produced independently but saw some great similarities because they had grown up together. And then because she's in Hong Kong, we're going to Skype her in on this giant monitor nice. so we can have a talk with her yeah, yeah. during the, uh, the show. But yeah, but you know, that kind of putting yourself in your work and performative kind of work is no stranger to you, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, and more, most recently, um, you, were, uh, you did a performative reading of the redactions of the Mueller report written yes. as fan fiction. Yes. Did, did I describe that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that which I've looked at, I've watched the videos and I, I read some of the excerpts and it's fantastic. Thank you. It is amazing. Thank yeah, you. yeah. And I wonder if you if you'd be willing to read a little excerpt from it just oh, to give sure. people uh, an idea. Oh, of course. Oh, hold on, I'm going to hand you this. Oh man, I'm curious to see what you chose. Oh, it's from the uh, NBC News. Okay. Report. Just that little excerpt. Yeah. Okay. It was one of those perfect weather days. Agent Robert Mueller felt relaxed for the first time in years. He was driving his 1967 Mustang convertible, his army cap holding his high and tight in place. He wanted to look good for Margaret later. They were going out for lobster rolls and a stroll through Annapolis. <laughs> I love that. I yeah. love it. It's, I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so sort of a murder mystery and it is. everything else. It's, it's so good. It's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can just, I'll, I, I'm trying to think where to start with this whole project. Well, let me just say in the in the NBC yeah. News report, what the person who wrote this up, uh, let me give them credit. It's um, Rashika Jaipur. Yeah. Wrote that. Everybody sort of chuckled at that because it's a funny kind of right. reference. Uh, but then also got very serious when you started reading the actual report. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, th- so the whole thing started was. I mean, I have, I think, like many people, a lot of interest in the Mueller report, but I think the it's like, how much do you commit yourself to it? Because it's a 400-page, you know, document. And so I, I sort of accepted the challenge of, like, I, I want to, I really want to know what happened um, with Russian interference. I want to know what the reference is. I want to know what's behind all of this. And when I started reading it, I sort of realized, A, that it was a little bit more readable than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I thought, like, as an artist, I mean, like, I'm, like, fairly well-read, but, like, legal legal documents and legal terms, I have no idea. If you ever tried to read Senate bills and addendums, it's, yeah, it's insane. So, I mean, so when I started reading, I was like, you know what, I can do this. And that was interesting to me because I felt like if I can do this, then really the American public should be able to do this. But one of the things that really stuck with me is like, I I can do this, but it's a challenge. So how am I going to make this more interesting to me? And I printed out the Mueller report and all 400 pages. <laughs> and then I went... I hope you did it here at SBA. I did. I did. Actually, <laughs> Seth, Seth, our um, systems admin, was out that day. And that was the only way I was going to be able to print 400 pages on our office coffee machine. Um, and he still doesn't know I did that, which is really funny. And who knows if he'll listen to this. That's but right. Anyway. Now we'll know if he listens. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
<laughs> so honestly, I just marched down the street and I got a like a white gel pen and I came back and I started reading the report and then I started filling in all the black spaces with sort of absurd jokes and kind of what I imagined to be redacted or hidden behind the black. And then sort of from there, I started this noir-like narrative of Mueller's life while he was writing the report. And then it just sort of the creativity took over and I was simultaneously exercising this creative muscle but also learning a lot of facts about what was actually in the report and what he was talking about, um, the details of the social media interference, the details of the hacked emails from the Democratic Party, the details of Julius, Julian Assange's involvement, and really the details of how much of Trump's administration knew what was going on when it was happening and really, all of that information is free information given to me in this report. So I just kind of took it at that point, like, I need to share the things I'm learning. And I felt the way to share it with adding the redactions in, it gives you at least a beat to laugh and to kind of take a break and also think about the absurdity of all of this, of the political world that we're living in. Yeah, that, I think the absurdity is is yeah. right because it's we we're following along like all this is normal. You know, right. we're we're you know we're begging for scraps of information. Exactly. Right. Uh, just exactly. to just to know some truth, some factual details. Yeah. And and the the way this administration keeps everybody begging, I mean, they're masterful at it. Yeah. yeah. And I think the authenticity of the information that we're getting is really important and scary. And I mean, I know that Trump is all on fake news and that's his, you know, his favorite line about anything that's anti-Trump. But really, I think we all have to be careful about the information that we take in. I mean, the Russian involvement and in social media is a perfect example of that. And I think that perhaps we can take on a little bit more than we think we can in terms of self-educating and allowing ourselves to kind of teach ourselves about what's about how politics are run and how, how everything really works and how the the search for truth and being as informed as possible in order for us to make the decisions we need to make in politics as citizens even the self-educating part you do you have to tread so carefully i think because of the desire to get um, eyes on your page and clicks, you know, the, the news does get it wrong at times right. because they are reaching so far to try to get a story t together. And, and they, they often also get set up with bad sources and all exactly. kinds of things. And, and with trying to figure things out on your own, you also have to be very careful about what you're reading. Next thing you know, you're holding up a Q sign at a Trump rally. You know? I know. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. It's it's. I feel like the the world of news is is like a, a minefield right now. Yeah, and I think that was also interesting to me. Like when I read the report, uh, six hundred one Art Space in in the beginning of June is when I had my reading. They're wonderful gallery um, on the Lower East Side to work with. Oh yes, yeah. 
But one of the things that I felt like was really important that I don't have a political agenda in all of this. I'm not a political analyst. I'm not running for office. I am an artist. (laughs) And I'm just, you know, on this mission of discovery on my own. And it's like, I'm bringing people along this journey with me. And I'm also, you know, I'm delivering some pretty heavy information, but I'm also trying to make it as fun as possible as well. Like, it's the only Mueller report reading with a dancing bikini girl. (laughs) There's a lot of animated videos that I put in and make, and I'm always trying to kind of keep things light because the reality is so heavy and scary. But it's a, it's a, it's a great use of art. Let's say that, right? I mean, <laughs> I think you. it's a, I think it's a, a something art does really well. Yeah, is to mix in the absurd and the facts and the entertainment. And, yeah, and and really, you know, because all of it is really commenting on how heavy and difficult the truth really is. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And also, I mean, I think that in terms of technology and in accessibility of information we were living in a time that we've never I mean everything just feels so new all the time it's like we're placed with a new challenge as citizens so how are we going to kind of figure out ways to come together not just as democrats or liberals but also as republicans and and this is an issue this information issue I think is goes for all of us mm-hmm. and I mean we no matter what party you're from, I think you want a fair election. I mean, ultimately, hopefully. (laughs) Um, So really, these are issues that like, I mean, obviously, I am a liberal Democrat, but I try really hard to make that not as much a part. I don't want to have any kind of personal political agenda as much. I'm trying to reach for ways that we can kind of all agree on, you know, truth, really. Right. No, no, I, I think that's right. I think that and I I think in this, especially with this Mueller report reading, yeah, all you're just, I mean, except for the entertainment part, you're reading the actual report, yes. you know, I mean, and so, you know, you would, you would hope that people at least want to know what the facts are. But, yes. Yeah. And that was actually the, the biggest reaction I got from people after the reading that came up to me was the information that they learned from the report. And that was what most of the comments came from and, mm. and uh, specific details um, and people just being like, I have no idea. And like the amount of manipulation from the Russians that are is really just on uh, social dynamics within our country, you know, picking out minority groups and just the level to which they go to, I think people are unaware of. And so that being the takeaway from the reading was the most important thing to me because that was really the kind of the agenda to help prov- to help make this information accessible to more people and to yeah you know early, earlier this year you were in a you were part of a an exhibition called Straight Through the Wall the Transfer Collection and mm-hmm. the Transfer Collection uh, what work was in that was was there were, there were projections and installations yeah. so that was yeah so it's actually this summer the Straight Through the Wall is sort of a guerrilla video collective oh and, okay and they did um, an open this is actually pretty amazing they did an open call as well and collected a bunch of video artists throughout the city and they basically go not just in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens and put together a lineup of video work. And basically, she put on a free, beautifully projected video show. In Brooklyn? In Brooklyn, all over. And the piece I did for that was a 
it was called uh, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and it's sort of about being, my family being from Brooklyn, and specifically Williamsburg, where I live now, and sort of this connection that I have to the city, and dealing with, I, I guess, the loss of family members and still feeling connected to a place when the people are gone. You you grew up in Brooklyn. I didn't grow up in Brooklyn, oh, oh. but um, I grew up on Long Island. But my family, like my grandparents, who were a big part of my upbringing, came over. Their parents came over. They grew up in Williamsburg, met at McCarran Park, got married at the you know the church I lived two blocks away from. So I just I Where, just, where'd they come over from? Naples. Oh, okay. So my family's uh, Italian family is originally from Naples and they came over through Ellis Island at like the turn of the century. And then they all, you know, were in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Were they able to guarantee that they wouldn't take public assistance uh, when they came over? Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't I think they were very much encouraged yes, to uh, come over. Yes. I think they were. And yes. Sorry. <laughs> they had a farm in New Jersey yeah. and they bought some farm. Oh, wow. Land Did they really? They, Do you know yeah. where in New Jersey? Uh, Sand Hills. No, I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Highly, highly encouraged, you know, only 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm sorry I, I interrupted you with that. But no, yeah. no, 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 no. It's yeah. just uh, it's such an interesting change of events. I've been really interested in American history lately. Mm. I feel like this whole like make America great again campaign has got me like on an investigation into when America was great to begin <laughs> with. And I am going through like a relearning of American history. But yeah. Did you ever read uh, Howard Zinn's People's History? Yes, I do. Yeah, I yeah, have yeah. that in my office, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. An, that's an eye-opener. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think we, th- we think of these things of, you know, being so long ago, you know, my grandparents' parents came over 100 years ago. And really, in the scope of time, it's not that long. So, you know, just to see how close things are and how much, you know, we really have or haven't grown and to kind of gain a little perspective, um, I think is really important. Yeah, but people say it all the time. It sounds cliche, but we really are quite a young country. Yeah. And uh, there's there are no rules that say we're not going to hit a period of fascism, right? Exactly. There exactly. Are, yeah. um, but so yeah, your your um, your family came through Ellis Island. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, and then your parents, which grandparents' side? Oh, are you so that was about? my yeah. Um, yeah, that was my my father's side, um, who are Italian, and they all kind of settled in Williamsburg, and then all moved out to Long Island, where I ended up being raised. So that like, I'm also half Irish, I have a wonderful Irish family as well. But I was just kind of brought up in the proximity mm-hmm. of all the Italians. <laughs> Suffolk County, Nassau County, Nassau County, uh, yeah. where? Um, Nassau. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Suffolk as a teenager. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot of good Long Island creative types. Yes. Um, actually. Yes. Yeah. So so the Italian heritage was more uh, yeah, so that was... Uh, your foundation of your family, yeah. Yeah, and I'm very interested in my family's history. I, you know, recently have acquired, I think, like every photograph, my father and grandparents um, who have all passed away. I've been just inherited their kind of photography collection, and I've been archiving it and really sort of getting, refalling in love with kind of like the history of the past kind of hundred years and like how far we've come and through through my own kind of discovery of familial history as your, well. Your father just passed away pretty recently. Yeah, my father passed away about six months ago. Yeah, and and you put you had put together a book. 
Right. At the last SVA book fair. Yeah, I'm actually, so I was um, really interested in, I acquired a lot of photographs that I've been working with, but I was really interested in, we found kind of like this garbage bag in the back of his closet, which had all of like his personal collection of photographs that, you know, thrown here and there and but I could tell you know looking through it was really amazing to see which ones he had a personal connection to not just of us but of like his family and going back like a hundred years so I've been putting together a book I've been organizing the photographs and kind of putting them in sort of a chronological a little bit but um, just a story that I've kind of come up with uh, leading through history of, of the photographs of our family that were really important to him. So yeah, and it's really gotten me, I've always been interested in vernacular photography, and I feel like I've always been that person at the flea market, you know, <laughs> yeah, collecting yeah. like random pictures, like, <laughs> and finding pictures. One of my other favorite things to do is like, I will find photographs of people's families usually uh, like Italian looking and I have my own photographs and I'll mix them up and, and I'll play guess which one is my family with friends. So I like that I kind of idea of vernacular photography and the attachments that we have to it and the nostalgia that it brings. But it's been a really wonderful sort of healing process for me to kind of go through my father's collection and and think about really the attachment to the family photograph and the process and and how different it is today, you know, with iPhone photography and digital and and really the beautiful objects that these old photographs are. And I think putting them in a book, I I want to create more of kind of a of a family heirloom that I can then pass on and, you know, make sure that the next generation also has you know, a knowledge of where we came from. Mm-hmm. Did uh, Have you discovered things you didn't know? I discovered things I didn't know. So clearly there was no second family anywhere? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think my favorite discovery was this picture of my grandma on a pony in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, when she was about maybe like six months old. And the photograph is a baby on a pony, but there's a person holding her up that managed to completely contort their body so that they weren't seen in the photograph, but managed (laughs) to hold the baby up. And I thought that was just the best thing Um, (laughs) and could very easily imagine it happening. And yeah, that was a special one. Yeah. I do, I do, I have discovered some other things that, are kind of interesting about my family, but I don't know if... Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you might not want to share those. I don't know. They'll kill me. They're, we'll talk after. Save that for the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You know, so uh, getting back to your the, the kind of work you make and yeah. the... Um, where did you go to undergrad? I went to Bennington College, and I graduated in 2006. Okay. So, um, so between 2006 and 2016... When did you, I'm sorry, when did you start here? I started here in 2013. 13, okay. Yeah. Um, what were you doing? Oh, man. <laughs> so I, I was, uh, at Bennington, I was a painter. Um, oh, yes. That's some of, some of your painting is yeah, still on your site, I still, right? I yeah. still paint. But yeah. after, afterwards, I moved to Providence, Rhode Island with a good friend. And I kind of, 
I started vaudeville, getting really interested in vaudeville theater. I think at, at the end of my Bennington, I started doing a little bit of comedy performance. I've always been interested in humor, but I've never really connected with sketch comedy or stand-up comedy. And I was sort of looking for that comedic outlet. And I became really, <laughs> I became kind of obsessed with Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. I, I can, listen, and, there's no, that's nothing to be embarrassed about. Yeah, They're and, masters, <laughs> masters, uh, yeah. Yeah, Laurel and Hardy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And sort of just their, you know, the physical appeal and like the ability to tell jokes without words. And I kind of was interested in this like accessibility. And so anyway, I I moved to Providence, Rhode Island, and I actually got hooked up with a burlesque troupe. And I started writing these kind of vaudeville sketches. I had one where I played Fred Astaire and one of the girls was Ginger Rogers. And I like also created a set where I was a uh, circus kind of like a circus freak from the 1920s and I was like half man half woman and I sort of I just became really interested in unearthing this like vaudeville old-fashioned theater and kind of delivering it to a modern audience with like a little bit more modern commentary and that kind of got me really interested I mean, it gave me the performance bug which then got me into video so I started writing these performances um, and building sets and kind of filming them and turning them to video work. And over the course of kind of like, I think about eight years, refining it. And then, and then I moved back to New York to here for graduate school. But I was also very highly involved in education. Um, I worked for a def- couple different nonprofits in mm. Providence, Rhode Island. And with a friend, we did these vaudeville workshops with students. So I spent like a pretty good amount of time studying physical comedy and kind of the art of the era and um, not only bringing it into my own work, but also teaching it to young, like middle school kids, actually, which is like a really hard age to teach. But you, not surprising, middle school kids love physical comedy. (laughs) And so they were all kind of interested in this like, very like goofy DIY physical comedy <laughs> theater. Um, what was the sort of the the goal or the point? What were you actually teaching? Like you were showing them uh, the sort of acting and theater yeah, I idea. Think I was. I think like the goal was to get them to use their bodies in a different mm. way, get them to use humor in a different way. I you know when I think of modern comedy, there's a certain vulgarity attached to it. And I liked the idea of this classic way of like physical performance that didn't involve any type of particular vulgarity. And there's a certain type of humor that can, I was looking for that maybe like could, you can make a a 10 year old laugh and a 90 year old laugh at the same joke. Like that was really interesting in me. And so I've always been interested in sort of a accessibility in my in my work and trying to reach out to a larger audience. Than, yeah. That, yeah, you know that this background really does explain a lot about your work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it yeah, really does. <laughs> when did uh, when did Cool Trash come into being? Cool Trash came into being. This is actually like another kind of like more challenging part of my life. Uh, I've been sober three years. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, And one of the things I did when I quit alcohol at sort of like a darker time in my life, I decided that I was going to, I became really appreciative 
of um, the women around me and the creative spirits around me. So Cool Trash was started as an outlet for me to sort of celebrate the creative person, specifically the creative female. And from there, it just became my like platform for a lot of the things I was thinking about. So at that time, it was friends and other artists and sort of like a blog. And then Cool Trash evolved a little bit when the Trump campaign, uh, when Trump came into office, there was a lot of uh, it was around the time where like the Me Too movement really became really surfaced, and so then Cool Trash sort of became a platform for me to talk about a lot of the thoughts I had about Me Too movement and issues, which for me is a lot about ingrained power dynamics that we have in place, rather than somebody kind of the more complexities of. Is this assault? Is that not assault? Was that consensual? Is this consensual? Well, like, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I think there's a lot of power dynamics that have been put in place for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of years. And we're at a new time. And there's we're open to conversation about these dynamics. And I don't think it's, I think there's a learning curve. And I think that we have to be a little bit patient with the learning curve, as unfortunate as that kind of sounds. I mean, in some ways, but, you know, and I think at the same time, I think I'm really lucky that I can speak my mind about certain things. And I want to inspire more like conversations about bigger picture ideas, I guess. And so, so Cool Trash kind of came about as really kind of like this platform for me to talk about what's really on my mind, whereas other art projects that I have done under their video projects are more about, uh, are more like narrative where the themes and ideas are more veiled under a narrative or story I'm trying to tell. I feel like Cool Trash allows me to be more to the point with where my, what my brain's thinking about, <laughs> what I'm really like obsessing about at the moment, and also allow me to generate a lot of work for it as Cool Trash kind of started out as a blog with images, um, now it's way more image-based and it's a lot of uh, composited material. I'm I'm in a lot of the images, sort of expressing, like I said, like power dynamics um, between male and female, the power dynamics of uh, positions of power in our government, and all of this kind of with my like same absurdist like uh, aesthetic that mm-hmm. I have. Yeah. And all my work. Yeah. Well, you, you're, you're back in education, right? You're, yeah. Your, your title is a administrator? Yes. Yes. You're right. Right. I'm coordinator of special projects. That's it. Coordinator. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you also, do you embrace that role as well as being part of education? Again? Yeah. I think I've always, since I was a child, wanted to be in education in some level. And I think when I was in my 20s, I was involved in a lot of different nonprofits. Some of my very close friends are also uh, really involved in education. I've always felt, you know, that education is the most important thing, really, and helping people make <laughs> informed decisions, informed life choices. And I think coming coming back here, I feel like I just have such a strong interest in knowing 
you know, maybe earlier in my education, I was I was learning how to teach and work with students at a younger age. And now I am more interested in the way that kind of like the machine works and what it takes to run uh, a department and at a, what it takes to be an art school, what it takes to be a major institution um, in New York City, a major yeah. world institution. I mean, you're in a place full of power dynamic. Right, exactly, <laughs> right? exactly. It's, there's an elite sort of uh, quality to being right. in a graduate art school as right. well. Exactly. But you're, you know, uh, um, the beauty of, um, of a lot of good programs now, like this one, is that it, it is attracting people from all over. And, yeah. and people who have not been part of a power structure before or, or right. felt powerful in right. any kind of way before. And so this, you're in this world that kind of, there's a, a part of you that can be the the administrator and the educator and a part of you that can still be this social activist artist right. when talking to these students, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm always really, I mean, I think I'm always really inspired by what the students are interested in and why they're here. And I really try to think about the li- like what it really means to pursue a life in the arts and making sure that students know that there isn't just one path towards this fulfilling life as an artist. It's not always just getting a gallery and showing work and being able to live off your work. A lot of the times it is about money, but it's also about figuring out a way to be fulfilled and appreciated in a community that you find that also supports you. I think for a lot of artists, it's not like they choose to be an artist. I feel like you're called Mm -hmm. because I don't know why anybody would choose this life. (laughs) No, it's true. So I think that, you know, it's a very rare thing that you can just live a life making money off of your work. I think that a lot of fulfillment, a lot of the goal of fulfillment in the arts is finding a community that you feel supported by that also supports you and and knowing that your voice can be heard in different ways to get your voice heard. And I think that is my goal as an educator now because I do see the power dynamics in place and the way people are thinking that, you know, the way to success is just one path or, but I think that you know, in the in the fear of the overall fascism, or just we, I mean, just like living in a political climate that's really intense, and yeah. and I think that you know what we what our goals should be should maybe be a little bit more about. <laughs> I sound like Marianne Williamson about finding love and you know love and fulfillment. But hey, Marianne Williamson and Cory Booker don't have bad messages. <laughs> Their messages the, are not bad. Some of those messages. Yeah. I mean, I really, I'm like, I like what this woman has to say. Yeah. But it's like I, you know, everyone is problematic in their own way, really. Right, but right. Like, you know, but I think ultimately we're living in kind of a time of things are uncertain and things are changing and nobody can really feel. I don't feel like people are, feel really solid on their own two feet and are feeling really grounded and confident about what's happening in the world. So I feel like reaching out and forming communities and friendships and support systems and creating not only as is the, your calling, but also as a way to kind of take care of yourself, as like a way of being mindful, as like a way of you know, self-care and not the pressure to show work. I'm not making this because I need to show work and sell it. It's like I'm making this because it makes me feel complete to make this. Yeah. 
And, I and, think those are also important messages to have right, right now. And no criticism of anyone who is making work to sell it. Oh, because no, no, if, of course not. if you can make a living at it, you know, go for it. Yeah, you know, uh, I've never figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's yeah. how I feel. I feel really uh, committed, you know, to education and my role as an administrator. I'm learning so much every day about it. But I also think of it very much as my, this is my income, this is my job, where I I think that my art, I feel separate from it. And like, for example, with the Mueller report, yeah, with with the Mueller report fan fiction readings that I'm doing, most of the money that I receive from it, actually not most of, 100% of the money I receive from it from selling zines, or posters does go to a charitable cause. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. and um, I'm actually, I have a uh, another reading coming up. A reading will take place on September 7th in Providence, Rhode Island at the Wilbury Theater at 7.30 p.m. I will be doing another reading of the Mueller Report fan fiction. Oh, that's great. Zito. And all the proceeds to that will be going towards a local organization called uh, Rhode Island Urban Debate League Mm. and that is basically teaching young teenagers how to debate and engage in politics. I feel strongly about in in the work that I'm doing with this particular Mueller report and political cause that anything that I'm gained from that is going back into uh, not-for-profits and organizations in this country. The, um, The first iteration of the reading that I did, all the proceeds went to the Florence Project, which is an organization in Arizona that helps immigrants with legal counsel um, who mm. are detained. So I'm trying to kind of separate this idea of what we can do with the power that we have and what... So for me, the, this art project is is about freedom of information and it's about giving back to our community whereas other other projects I see as more like I'm like oh if I like sold that it would be income (laughs) I don't know I think that's getting into weird art money stuff but um (laughs) I just in my thought process I'm just (laughs) no I know it's you know trying to figure out you know where you want to be able to create the work and not necessarily think about, well, what gallery might do this or how would I publish this or, you know, which, you know, and those are all fine goals to have and everything. But, and then there's the practicality of, you know, making work and also needing to make a living and, 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 you know, to be honest, wanting some recognition. I mean, we're not, we're not doing this to live in a vacuum, you know, it would be nice to be recognized. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, there's all of that. And, and, and then when you can do something like the Mueller report where the where pr- proceeds go to uh, good organizations and and audiences are enjoying it. I mean, that's fantastic. That's yeah. a win-win. I mean, it's really great. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I think like to, we could all sit around and talk about all the people and things and organizations and businesses and whatever that we have issues with in this country. But I think it's also important to talk about organizations that are doing really wonderful things and also be able to like kind of remind ourselves about like the positive things that do happen because with all without those positive things it's just negative and we're in a spiral yeah um can i make a suggestion for the next reading that 
you get some good quality audio and video recording yes, of yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. I have that. I've already <laughs> talked. I've already talked to them. Good. You know, the thing, the you know, the gallery, the gallery was amazing, but I was unmiked, and that was a, that was the total challenge. <laughs> yeah. um, I was like one volume voice, and it was like. Uh, right. Well, if you ever want to do a good quality audio recording, just let me know. I yeah. know who to call. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so that is. I am. I am definitely getting some documentation for this next reading that I'm hoping to, you know, keep and hopefully get to get to do it again. Yeah. Um, in different iterations, I think. Would you do it here? I yeah. If they ask I mean, me. Yeah. Ask my boss to ask me. Um, <laughs> No, yeah, I, def- I definitely would do it again. I think, too, the thing that's interesting about when you're doing anything off of politics, it's everything's changing constantly. Yeah. So I'm definitely evolving the the lecture and the reading. So I'm hoping to continue to do it um, over this next year. And also, I, I labeled this new lecture, Mueller Report Fan Fiction with Liz Zito and Other Political Plot Twists. <laughs> Because I think that there is so much information to discuss and things that are happening and changing so quickly. So it's definitely something I am I'm continuing to develop with, you know, impeccable audio recordings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the pace of news right now is is off the charts and how yes. quickly things change and, and news yes. breaks. And, and I think that's scary, too, because, oh, you know, totally. you forget, you know, and I think they that you the politicians use that as an advantage. Absolutely. Um, I mean, who's talking about the Mueller report right now? Yeah, no, it's yeah. done. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, um, yeah, I just want to ask you a few, uh, few pers- more personal questions. Sure. If you don't want to answer them, just let me know. Okay. Um, you know, would you, what, what did your father do and your, and your mother? What did um, they do? Yeah, so my father was a neuroradiologist and he was like a leading diagnostician and I think like at like the high point in his career he was reading like a hundred MRI scans a day on the brain so (laughs) he was a very uh very brilliant man in the sciences Mm. and my mother was there was uh four of us and oh okay (laughs) we were born very close in age where are you um I'm in the middle like upper middle, lower middle, lower middle. <laughs> so I, you know, I yell out for attention. That's right. Um, I was forgotten at soccer practices, so I figured out. Yeah, I know. So I figured out how to, you know, get attention. But yeah, I, uh, my parents had four kids. We were all extremely different, so they're all very supportive mm-hmm. in us following whatever path we might want to follow. Um, yeah. Any any other artists in the family? I think that we're all creative. I have, I have my brothers are have always been interested in writing. Mm. Um, I know I think we're all fairly creative, but like my sister's a historian. Oh wow! Um, she teaches middle school Latin. Wow! <laughs> so she's like wow. in the classics, and and my other brother is a psychiatrist in UCLA and um, UCLA Hospital. So he's taken on the medical route, but he's a brilliant writer. Mm. Speaks Italian. So uh, yeah, they've. Uh, They've all been really, we're all very strange, and they've all been... A solid liberal yeah, arts family. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Wow, that's great. Uh, yeah. In terms of, um, you know, you continuing to show work and, and doing the Mueller Report and other things, and yeah, what, where do you see your, like, you're very much involved in, in showing your work online, right. Instagram and, yeah. your, and your website and all. Yeah. Where do you see the sort of the venue for your work 
down the road, you know, like where, like, like, because what you do is it's performative and there's yeah. video and it's multimedia. Yeah. And like where, where do you see the platform for multi multimedia art going? Oh, geez. I have no idea. I mean, honestly, the, the most exciting thing for me that I've been thinking about lately, I was watching a documentary on <laughs> Mark Twain. <laughs> and he did these, he would go on these tours and do these lectures around the country of, of his writing. And I really liked that idea of I don't know if I'm someone who could be able to go on tour, but I really like these ideas of of going on tour and going to these different spots around the country and kind of giving a lecture. But in in, in my case, it would be kind of a wild lecture, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> you know, wild political <laughs> lecture. Um, and I like I like the idea of the performances right now. Um, that's kind of the thing that gets me the most excited, being in the moment with somebody and something. So I feel like I'm going to, you know, see where that leads me. I've also noticed that I feel like my appeal has always been a little bit toward more to a mainstream audience than an art audience. Mm. Any press that I've gotten has always been from like a mainstream stream news source rather than an art news source. That's interesting. So so there's always been like a pull for me to see like where I could go in terms of more like mainstream venues um, rather than keeping it within like an art circle. I just I think like I am as an artist, I reflect a lot of my practices reflected on things in pop culture, whether it be news or entertainment or religion. So I think with that commentary, there is there is an audience for that that is a little bit more accessible, which is what's interesting to me about kind of doing these like traveling lectures, perhaps. But I'm definitely a fan of like the one night pop up. I like things in the moment. I am trying, I will definitely try to put something together for the 2020 election. Um, a lot of my cool trash work that I've been doing in the past four years, I've been like pretty steady about accumulating a lot of material. Yeah. So I think I would like to put together some type of show or presentation that around the time of the next election, because it really is like a documentation of four years of political turmoil Mm -hmm. and social turmoil that we've been in through the eyes of me. (laughs) (laughs) But a lot of things that I've made, I make in the moment. So for me, they're not only... Because of their topical nature? Yeah, because of the topical nature. So if I'm watching a story unfold on the news on my computer, I'm on my phone making an image about it as it's happening. Um, It's a way that I process the material that I'm learning about. So I think that I think I would like some type of to show some type of accumulation of all the things I've been working on. But yeah, I'm, I still like, like I said, accessibility. I don't, I see everything still living on the web. And yeah, I mean, I think I'd be open to a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I think the, your answer reflects your, uh, what is it? Uh, ability, desire, and uh, um, just, just the way you, you mix in culture and art and the way you're thinking about it. Like, right. I don't think it's, there, there's, you're not easy to define no. <laughs> in terms of art, and that's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I, even looking at um, even looking at cool trash, you, you've do also described it as a brand, right? As a yeah, almost yeah. like a product, yeah. right? And there's ephemera, right? You, there's right. like a fashion line of yeah. cool trash and everything, right? So, yeah. so I don't. I, I think it's great that it's not 
so easily defined and yeah. not so well defined because I think it's it allows you to um, to more freely react to things right. as you're making as you're making art right yeah. yeah like that's what I said like it started off as a specific kind of blog I was actually like reacting to the offense I took to Gwyneth Paltrow's goop. <laughs> line. And I was going to mention goop. Yeah, it, I mean, it started off very goopy. And basically, like, when I'm reading about Gwyneth Paltrow, I'm like, all of her knowledge or like, like, what makes her the expert on all of these things? Like, she's a self, like, she's defining herself as an expert on things she's not an expert about. And I was like, well, I can do that. And so then I decided that I was an expert on whatever beauty and health and whatever, just because, I mean, I feel like that's a little bit of the age we're living in. Yes. So that's where it started. And then I think that keeping it loose and kind of absurd allowed it to be flexible and turn into this other thing. And now, like... It's Cool Trash is the name of my zine. Mm -hmm. So it's a Cool Trash zine, but it also does still exist as a blog. And I don't know, that maybe it'll be a, probably be a book someday, to be honest. Yeah, no, like, absolutely. Like, I've accumulated so much. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's how I kind of see it yeah. down the line. Yeah, um, so right now, if, uh, if people want to know sort of the most about you, is it is it the website? Is it uh, Instagram? Is it, what would be the best way to keep track of what you're doing? Um, I would say Instagram is the best. I and my Instagram handle is at otizil. It's my name backwards. Otiz.zil. Yeah, otiz.zil. Right. So it's <laughs> otiz.zil, um, which you can also, I'm, my website is lizzito.com and you can get my Instagram through there as well. Yeah, I post pretty frequently, but I think like with the, I make work pretty prolifically and so I'm always kind of posting things that I make also I rarely post something that somebody else makes mm. and I will label it so I've gotten that a couple times like did you make that did you make I mean oh. really I make everything I'm always on my oh, phone okay. making things right so everything I post is like it's pretty much like videos and images or uh, huh. um but well, it would be horrible if you were posting things you didn't make. well no, no I mean <laughs> I, I, no, I like, just mean like for, for people to ask that question is also to assume that you're just showing other people's work oh right? yeah but I mean like yeah. some things like like with like the generation of meme like meme culture oh, yes, I yes, think yes, like there's yes. a lot of like people sharing other people's memes and I, I don't think what I do it's in the meme universe but um a little bit of the genre yeah yeah yes, yes. so um also you know I share some things about my life on there too that mm -hmm. I that you know your dog I, yeah my dog <laughs> My dog's on there also, <laughs> some family, it's, you know, my personal Instagram as well. That's right. I try not to, um, I d don't separate those things. Yeah, I don't either. As, yeah. yeah, the podcast, my personal stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think I annoy people with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, on a, on a more personal note, I want to thank you for all the help you give me in, in doing the show and in being able oh, to record yeah. it here at SVA. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're very welcome. We we love having you. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> and being able to supply, being able to give people space to do their creative jam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I people, you know, I think people are pretty excited when they come here and they meet people and they meet everyone and you yeah. know. So it's nice for them too. It's nice for the guests. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, thank you very much. I'm glad we got to do this. Thank you, Michael. This has been great. Yeah, and I'm really excited for you this Mueller report yeah. reading. I mean, it's really, really uh, yeah. a great way to consume the report. Oh, yeah. thank you so much. September 7th, <laughs> Providence, Rhode Island, Wilbury Theater. The next episode up won't be yours, but oh, I'll yeah, announce yeah, it yeah, during yeah. it. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm like, oh, yeah, when this airs, it'll That's be. That's right. All right. Thank you, and bye, thank everyone. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.